Gun violence has drastically become more frequent across the country, making us more hesitant of stepping outside of our homes and more frightened for our loved ones. However, the prevalence of gun violence and the damage it wrecks on family life is not a new phenomenon in this country. For Ebony, her encounter with gun violence occurred back in 2010 when she lost her husband and the father of her three children. In the face of the unthinkable, Ebony's story is one of resilience and compassion. Driven by her love for her children and her undying faith, Ebony was determined to not only heal from this incident, but also use her experience to help others impacted by gun violence and break the cycle of harm it causes. I'm Tai Chu. And this is Listen for a Change, a podcast amplifying the unique stories from the invisible among us. We find the voices you don't often hear, we empower them to heal around their experience using storytelling, and we turn up the volume to open up all of our hearts and minds. This isn't just storytelling, this is an intervention to restore compassion. Ebony first told her story at our Oakland Story Hour in September 2022. Here now, we walk through it again and go a little bit deeper. My name is Ebony Antoine, and I was born in 1979 in the Bronx, New York. By the time my mother and father would meet, my mother would already have two children from a previous relationship. You would think that this would be, ideally, a love story between my mother and father, being that they are both from Trinidad and Tobago and would meet in New York City. But unfortunately, their love story had a lot of domestic violence, which would then land my mother in Oakland, California, running from her abuser, who was my father. My mother landed in Oakland, California with three children and needed to make it happen needed to support all three of her children by herself, which means she typically worked two to three jobs, which means we rarely ever saw her. My oldest sister, or my only sister, was five years older than me, and my brother was three years older than me. So by the time I was seven, my sister was 12 years old, and she was our primary caregiver, which means that she woke us up in the morning for school And on rare occasions, we would be able to see our mom on our way out the door. But she was the one we came home to, and she was the one that helped with our homework. And she also was the one who cooked dinner and put us to bed at night. My sister was our caregiver. She was our everything. And oftentimes, my mother was never really around, which means that I watched a lot of TV. I was kind of set apart from my brother and sister. I felt like I stood out or I actually isolated myself a lot. And TV was my safe place. And one of my favorite shows was The Cosby Show. I became obsessed with The Cosby Show. I wanted to be Claire Huxtable. I wanted to be one of the Cosby kids because their family dynamic was absolutely the opposite of my family dynamic. I began to start dreaming, I guess, early teenage years about what I wanted to be. And more than anything, I desired to be a wife and a mother. And in 1998, at the Fruitvale Bar Station in Oakland, California, I spotted him. He stood about six foot three. He was brown skin, 
well-groomed, dressed amazingly, and I couldn't keep my eyes off of him. I remember nudging my girlfriend that was with me, and I said, girl, I think I found my baby's daddy. We laughed, and he must have caught us laughing and looking, and he motioned for me to come over. I tried to play it cool, but I didn't hesitate. I would later find out his name was Corey Rojas. He was everything I could have ever imagined. He seemed extremely interested. We exchanged phone numbers, and I was excited, to say the least. But I remember telling myself, make this brother work and make sure you don't fall in love. So I remember not calling the first day. And I also remember him calling and me not answering. But by the second day I have given in, he called again. And I was nervous. I was nervous because he, again, was everything that I could have dreamed of. And I can clearly say it was love at first sight. Often he would show up with flowers. He would call and say, have you eaten? He didn't have a car, but he was willing to get on the bus. Needless to say, I fell in love. And a year later, we would have our first daughter. Her name is Courtney. Yeah, Courtney was named after Corey, and she so happened to look just like him. What I didn't expect is that this pregnancy would have me very ill. I developed a condition called hyperemesis, which means my body was almost allergic to pregnancy which means that anything that I had eaten would then come back up. So these nine months of pregnancy would have me in and out of the ER. And right there every time was Corey. Every time I was admitted, every time I went back in for rehydration, he was right there with me up until I gave birth and she was healthy. At the end of the pregnancy, I lost 60 pounds. That's how ill I was. But it didn't feel so bad because I didn't have to endure it by myself. Corey was right there. The unfortunate thing about this amazing love story is that Corey and I didn't have the greatest examples of what love is and how to positively navigate through disconnects. And so that will cause us to break up for about a year in about 2000. The year was 2000. But that breakup would be a setup for an amazing makeup. Corey and I would get back together. We would end up getting married in a beautiful church wedding right there in Oakland, California. We had an amazing reception. I remember after the reception, stepping outside and having his car, which was a nice Cadillac with just married on the back with the cans. It was beautiful. It was more than I ever imagined. Corey and I had made a decision that I would stay home. But unfortunately, living in the Bay Area wouldn't be an option because one income wouldn't allow it. So we decided to move to Stockton, California. Once in Stockton, I decided if I'm home, why not have another baby? So the blessing of having my next child, which is my son, Avion, that happened in 2005. Unfortunately, hyperemesis would show his ugly head again. But this time, the doctor had some mercy on me. He installed a PIC line, which is a central line. And I went home to have home infusion. And just like Corey was there with Courtney, taking care of me is the same way that he took care of me when I was pregnant with Avion. A couple of years later, my best friend, the one that was at the BART station with me when I met Corey, by this time she has five children and her older two are teenagers. And she decided that she needed some assistance. 
in raising her children. After a long conversation with Corey, we decided it would be best that she'll come out to Stockton and live with us. Well, not live with us, but we lived in an apartment complex. So we would live very close to each other. Soon after, I would be pregnant again, and my best friend would be too. Our children are two weeks apart. So imagine going through a pregnancy with your best friend, doctor's appointments, baby showers. It was a dream come true. After our babies were born, we decided we needed more space. So we found a location, a townhouse on the other side of town. Unfortunately, we didn't do the research about the area. We would later find out that this area was heavily gang-ridden, a lot of gun violence, a lot of drugs. But we thought we lived on the inside and we weren't about that life, so we wouldn't have anything to worry about. A little less than a year in, tragedy struck really close to home. It was May 1st, and I remember sitting in my bed combing Courtney's hair because I had decided to serve in church. I had decided to be an usher. So this was a big thing for my family. I prepared the kids. It must have been about 8.45 at night. And I was sitting on my bed, combing Courtney's hair, and I heard gunfire. I heard rapid gunfire. It sounded like about 20 shots. I remember sliding off the bed with Courtney on the floor. I remember Corey running up the stairs to make sure that we were okay. After the gunfire ceased, we could hear moans. This was a warm night and my bedroom window was open. The moans came through the window. Corey decided he was not going to let this man die by himself. He motioned to run downstairs and I grabbed him and I told him to wait. I asked him to wait until he saw sirens, until the authorities were there first. Once we saw the sirens, Corey went out. He then realized he knew the gentleman from the neighborhood. He then ran across the plaza to tell his aunt what had happened. Corey's name was heavy in the investigation. It was a really, really rough night. We would then find out, hours later, that this guy didn't make it. He actually succumbed to his injuries. I remember Corey and I laying in bed. I don't believe we slept a wink. But at about 7 a.m., I got up like clockwork because I had made a commitment to serve in church. So I went downstairs and began to iron my clothes, and there was a knock at the door. It was a detective, and he asked for Corey by name. I invited the detective in, and I went upstairs to wake up Corey. Corey came downstairs. The detective asked him questions, which Corey couldn't answer because he didn't see much. But he did share exactly what we saw and exactly what we heard. The detective then gave Corey his business card and asked him to call if he remembered any information. I went to church as if nothing really happened, but I definitely was nervous. I was very scared. I had never experienced death so close to home. After conversations with my best friend who lived next door and Corey, we came to the conclusion that it was an isolated incident and that we were fine. Even though I didn't think things were fine, Corey eased the anxiety and life just went on as usual. May 13th, 2010. This day was just like any other day. I cooked dinner. We laughed and played with the kids. And at about 9.30, like clockwork, I sent Courtney upstairs to bed. She hugged her dad. She hugged me. And she went off upstairs to bed. At about 9.30, there was a knock at the door. 
I motioned my godson. I told him, it's 9.30. It's got to be your mom. He looked at Corey and he said, good night, uncle. Good night, auntie. And as he opened the door, an astonished look came over his face. Corey caught the look and pushed him out of the way. Ten shots came through my front door. I remember sliding off the couch and grabbing my two children, Avion and Layla. Avion at this time is five years old and Layla is one years old. I remember Courtney wailing from the top of the stairs. I remember Corey being knocked down by two shots. I'm really not sure what happened after that, but the next thing I remember is my Bible in my hand and my arms wrapped around Corey. Shortly after, I remember a police officer. I remember his eyes. I remember the compassion in his eyes when he looked at me. I remember the gurney coming in and wheeling Corey out. I remember ripping my shirt in agony, not understanding what just happened. In a blink of an eye, my whole world had flashed before my eyes. I also remember calling Corey's parents. My best friend and I got in the car and somehow I drove to the hospital. By the time I got there, Corey's family members were there and his dad was there also. Moments later, the doctors called me and Corey's dad in the back room. At this time, they told me that Corey didn't make it. It seemed unreal. You couldn't imagine your life just changing in the blink of an instant. I remember walking outside and looking up into the sky. I remember dropping to my knees and crying to God that he had let me down. I didn't know what I was facing. I just knew that it was bad. I'm not sure who told me about assistance through the California Victims Compensation Board, but I was grateful to know that they would help with assistance in burying Corey, the final preparations. I was also informed that they would help with mental health counseling, relocation, and a host of other services. And I needed them all because in the blink of an eye, I was homeless, a widow, and a single mother of three. I was really grateful to receive services from the California Victim Compensation Board. The unfortunate thing is there was a lot of red tape. And even though they pay for Corey's funeral, there was a lot of denial in other services. I also was able to get mental health assistance. I had an amazing therapist that was readily available, able to work with my schedule, even to come to the house occasionally. I knew that it was important that I process the trauma that I had dealt with. And I also knew journaling was part of it. I really worked the steps because I needed to heal. I needed to be what my kids needed me to be in order to make sure that they were productive citizens. I also know that they did not need or nor did they deserve an unpresent mother. So it was my priority to heal. So for the first three to five years, I went through a lot of counseling, a lot of journaling. I went to some retreats in order to process my grief. And what I realized is in those spaces, I would meet other people who had similar lived experiences. They only weren't doing as well as I was. In 2017, I decided to create an organization. It's called Broken by Violence. And we specialize in helping victims impacted by gun violence. We provide safe spaces to process the trauma associated with gun violence. We provide funding and rental assistance. We do 
women's retreats, healing retreats, we provide wraparound services tailored to what it is each individual may need. And here we are in 2022. And I can say I am grateful that I use the tools afforded to me. I am grateful because my children benefited from me working my tools, me pouring into myself and healing. Courtney, who was 10 when Corey was murdered, is now 23. She's a college graduate. She recently moved to Dallas and is living her best life. Avion, who was five years old when he lost his father, is now 17, a senior in high school. He's been on his job for over a year. He's driving, honor student, and last but not least, Layla, who was one years old, is now 14, a freshman in high school, witty, well-adjusted. It is imperative that we process our grief because there is still life after pain. There is still joy after trauma. And Broken by Violence helps me help other families process their grief and their trauma. Ebony, thank you again so much for sharing your story. Um, this is my second time hearing your story, and I I am just still in awe um, at the strength and and courage that you have to share a story that is really hard, I'm sure, for you to relive. Um, I want to start off asking specifically about your the role of faith in you grieving and processing and healing from this. You mentioned several times. Um, the role of your faith. You talked about um, holding the Bible right immediately after um, your husband was shot. What has been the role of faith since then for you? How has it helped you and your family heal from, grow from, and continue healing um, as you move forward together? That's a great question. My faith actually is my source. (laughs) I could not imagine life without it. Faith to me is an opportunity to believe that things get better. My belief in God is my way of understanding that nothing happens by accident. Early on, I thought, oh, how evil for God to choose me to hold such a horrific burden. But I also understand that I'm not alone. I'm not the only person in the world that suffers. I'm not the only person in the world who's had such a traumatic loss, but I know that things work together for good. And I also know that the plans that the devil had to destroy me, that God will make for my good. And I just got really heavy into my word because I needed to make sense of why, why me, why my family. And I believe that God said, This loss is going to infuriate you so much that you're going to dig so deep within yourself to survive. And when you come out of it, you're going to help others. And and I'm grateful. There is a, a scripture in Job, and he says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, 
And I can see that coming into fruition. I cannot say that I have arrived there just yet, but I understand the plans. Um, If I could choose not, I would choose not, of course. But if I was chosen for this, then I didn't want to waste the pain. I definitely needed to find something deeper, a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge of God, a deeper knowledge of self. And I believe now that I can do anything. I can do all things. (laughs) And um, I'm grateful. And sometimes I shock myself to see all that I have created and the children that I have raised and the woman that I am now. And it's all attributed to my faith. What are some specific ways in which you continue to remember Corey, Um, you know, keep his memory alive or just have Corey's presence around, not just for yourself, but for your family, for your children? Well, my youngest daughter has a picture and it might have been taken a couple of months before Corey passed. And I remember it being cold, so it wasn't even part of the family picture, but I have a picture of him wrapping her in his coat and him looking at her. So that's in my living room. Um, We would often watch home videos. And then there are some sayings, like my daughter just mentioned to me the other day that ever since she was little, her dad always told her, you don't date till you graduate. And then he would say college. And we would all laugh like that's forever. But it's those things remembering his voice, remember his sayings, remember his laughter or his corny shirts he used to wear with the tiger print rayon. And we would laugh like, oh my God, he really would wear this shirt. But it also would be incidents where he coached my daughter's basketball team and one of the girls threw the ball in and knocked his glasses off. And, you know, he walked around with a chip in his glasses for months. And I mean, it's just those things that we're grateful for, that we're grateful for experiencing Um, yeah, those are the things that we keep them alive with. And then I know that we, we want our best. We want to make sure that we live a legacy that he would be proud of. We won't let that horrible night in May of 2010 indicate how we remember him, but we will leave a mark on the earth that he was here and because he loved and because he loved his children and his family We can keep going and we can keep smiling because bad things happen to good people, but it's what we do with it. It sounds like Corey was a wonderful father to your three kids. Um, Can you take me back to the moment you talk about when you first met him, you, you said to your friend, what were the words? This, this is going to be my baby, my baby's daddy or something. Yes, I think I found my baby's daddy. I think I found my baby's daddy. And he wasn't just your baby's daddy. He was your three babies' daddy. (laughs) What What was it like seeing your firstborn, Courtney, for the first time? And was Corey by your side? What was that feeling like between the two of you? So I have to go back just to my upbringing. Um, My mother wasn't married for a lot of my childhood, so I didn't believe it was realistic. Nor were many of the women that I knew, nor were any of the women my age. So baby daddy just seemed normal. 
And I honestly didn't think the relationship would last. So yes, I got pregnant with Courtney early on and he was right there by my side. I remember him pacing and I remember him pacing in the hospital when I was in labor. And I remember him looking out the window. It was at Summit Hospital, which overlooks the freeway in Oakland. And I asked him what he was doing and he said, counting the cars. (laughs) So he was nervous, but yes, he was right there with me. I went through nothing alone. He held my hand, he cut the cord. I mean, once I delivered her, she slept on his chest. I mean, she was spoiled. She's still spoiled, (laughs) but uh, daddy's girl, daddy's girl, a hundred percent. So you talked about growing up in um, in New York, right? Was it the Bronx or Brooklyn? The Bronx. The Bronx. You were born there, right? Yes. Um, what was what was your relationship to guns, gun culture in general, growing up? Do you remember ever seeing a gun? Do you remember how you know, like, were guns ever present in in day to day life? Like, was it something you joked about? Was it something that was actually a concern? What was, how were guns present in your upbringing? They weren't. I actually was born in the Bronx, New York, but I moved to Oakland, California when I was three years old. So I remember my first incident with gun violence. It was like this guy I had a crush on in seventh grade. And I remember us hanging out at the YMCA in Oakland, maybe a month before he was killed. I was in seventh grade. He was in ninth grade. And I remember being devastated. I remember, like, it makes me emotional just thinking about it, but that was my first incident with gun violence. And honestly, it was my last until my husband. So I I knew that it happened when I was in seventh grade. I remember his death. I remember going back to school and everybody talked about it. I remember bumping into his mom and in public and just the look in her eyes. Um, But other than that, I didn't have much experience with gun violence. Nobody I knew had a gun. I don't think I've ever seen a gun, but it was all in the community. I grew up in East Oakland, but the good thing about it is that we didn't live in any projects. We lived on a good block. (laughs) So that's how it is in Oakland. You can either live on a bad block or you can live on a good block. So the good block I lived on, there was no gun violence. Now, we would hear gunshots, of course, but yeah, it wasn't something that we faced daily, or I don't know if I was sheltered. I want to transition over to talking about your nonprofit. So Broken by Violence, um, you started this nonprofit yourself, and it came out of um, your own healing process and wanting to help other people. And I, I absolutely love the mission and I encourage everyone to look up broken by violence, but a part of the work that you do is listening to other families talk about and, and cope with and heal through their own tragedies with gun violence. How do you do that day in, day out, um, and show up for other people with empathy while still reliving that own tragedy and trauma that you have in your own life over and over again? That is a great question. Um, It's heavy. It's very heavy. It's heavy to hold space with other people. I actually had a group last night. It was our first time we launched um, 
our virtual platform, also having a therapist um, co-facilitate with me. And it is very heavy. It's heavy because there's not a lot of resources. And the families that I'm helping can afford to take time off and really properly grieve. And so in that space, I just share with them that I know exactly what they're dealing with. And I also let them know that there was no safe place for me. In every group that I attended, every bereavement group, I was the only one that had such a horrific story. And it's a lot more tragic when everyone's looking at you with the, oh my God, like that's a story unheard of. And then it's different holding space with one of our Broken by Violence healing spaces because everyone understands what you're going through. You're amongst people with the same lived experiences. There are mothers who have lost their sons. There are wives who have lost their husbands. There are cousins who have lost their brothers. Or, I mean, it, it's gun violence is a very complex grief to process. And how I process it, honestly, um, it's a little heavy today still. So I am going to do a lot of self-care. I'm going to go and get a massage. I'm going to pray and I'm going to cry probably later on. <laughs> and then I'm going to be better <laughs> because I know that I know that I have to be. And I'm grateful to God that he gives me the strength to go back at it. And I'm grateful that I have a community that surrounds me with love and in prayers. So that's how I process. It's interesting you talking about the complexities of processing gun violence. And I think this is one of those things that so many people, because it's just such a visceral thing and it's very clear what happened and we all put ourselves in the shoes of of people who've lost loved ones due to gun violence, that we assume we know what it is like to grieve, to process, to cope with that, even if we haven't gone through that experience ourselves. What are some unique challenges um, or maybe even silent challenges that you have had to deal with and go through that you may not even share with people, but are just like day-to-day things that you deal with. Are there any of those things for you? Absolutely. I recently had a moment. um, I was shopping and there was a baby. She was a little less than two years old and the mom was trying to console her and and she just cried, mommy, I want my daddy. And I had to get out of the store because it reminded me of my youngest daughter who was a daddy's girl. And for the first couple of months, I could not soothe her. And she wanted her dad and the little girl was about the same age. So those moments are really hard. Also, people don't understand that when you have so many other responsibilities, you can't really afford to just dive into the grief, to just be still and allow yourself to just in a fetal position, cry and pray because you have to get to work and you have to cook dinner. And so a lot of the times you're in survival mode, which means you're just there. A lot of things now, I remember my kids having conversations like, oh, mom, do you remember we did? And I don't remember. And so it wasn't living to me. It was just existing. But I'm grateful to say 
that now I'm living. Over the past two years, I have processed enough. I've journaled enough. I've prayed enough to say that I'm present. I'm working in my purpose. And um, I'm no longer just surviving, but I'm thriving. That's really inspiring. Um, and it it brings me back to the organization that you founded, Broken by Violence. Um, can you share a little bit more about that organization with us, especially directed at people who may know others who could use um, your organization as a resource? Um, what kind of services do you provide and how can people learn more about this organization? Yes, absolutely. So Broken by Violence is a nonprofit organization specializing in helping families impacted by gun violence. We're actually hoping, and we have had opportunities and funding opportunities to provide housing assistance and emergency relocation. We provide referrals for mental health. We provide an essential needs pantry. And more than anything, us specializing in helping victims impacted by gun violence, it gives us a, it's a tailored approach that not many other organizations understand. And the only way to interrupt the cycle of violence is making sure that people who have experienced harm have the proper resources to heal. I encourage everyone to check out my website. It's brokenbyviolence.com. And we're looking to support families who have been impacted by gun violence and they need a tailored approach and they need a specialty and they need assistance. Well, thank you once again, Ebony, for sharing your story with us and just being vulnerable so that other people can connect to this experience. Um, I know that there are definitely people out there, myself included, who connected to certain parts of your story. And through your healing, I think we find inspiration. So thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you liked our show, please be sure to check out listenchange.org to learn about our storytelling workshops. And please rate and subscribe Listen for a Change wherever you get your podcasts. Our production team for this episode was Tunde Damarin and Momo Kaneda. I'm Tai Chu, and remember, a story untold is simply a thought.